That was high when I said that. I mean, that doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah, I was. But I'm not anymore. I make sense now. I think. Conspiracy Guide. My name is Sean and I am trying to be your conspiracy guide, but it doesn't seem like Twitter wants me to be. The same day that I released the introduction episode to this podcast was the day that Twitter banned me permanently. I was going to use my Twitter account to initially distribute this podcast and I never got a chance to do that. I didn't have a massive following on there, but I did have that account for 12 years and I did get a decent amount of authentic interaction. And if you know anything about how Twitter works, it's kind of difficult to establish that with, you know, all the bots and whatnot that's on there. But anyway, even though I didn't get to use my Twitter account to distribute the podcast, I am actually uh, quite humbled and impressed by the amount of downloads and listens that I did get. So uh, if you were one of those people, thank you for listening and um, I really appreciate it. So what did I do to get myself banned? Well, I responded to some, I don't know, ridiculous puff piece uh, about the VA and uh, it was saying like how well they take care of our soldiers or something. And I said, Thank you for your service. Now, please go die defending Ukraine. Well, Twitter thinks that this is advocating violence. And even though I explained to them that I'm a non-interventionist and I don't want anyone to die in any war anywhere, well, the fascistas down there at Twitter, they deleted me anyway. And I guess you're just, you know, not allowed to disagree. It's like, just put the Ukraine flag in your bio and shut up. Now, trust me, I'm no right-wing apologist, and uh, neither was my Twitter feed. I had quoted everyone on there from Michael Malice to Michael Parenti, and it just goes to show that it's not necessarily about, I guess, political leanings, but that you're just not allowed to go against the ruling regime from either side. Uh, Criticism will not be tolerated, um, at least currently on Twitter. Who knows? Maybe the great African-American technocrat uh, Elon Musk will save Twitter, but, well, I'm not going to hold my breath on that one. Speaking of social media, uh, I guess, companies, though, Uh, Say what you will about Kanye or Ye, as it were. He definitely knows how to get people talking. And so him announcing that he's going to buy Parler, that could actually be a good thing. So I did register a handle at Parler. I will put that one in the uh, description of this show, even though it's probably going to take some time to kind of get these accounts up and running. 
Um, after all, the Twitter account um, for the show, uh, uh, forgot to mention, the show uh, has a Twitter account. I personally do not because I've been banned permanently. But the show has a Twitter account. And that is at CGP show. So at CGP show. And it has about five followers. So no hope for uh, distributing the podcast that way. But I'm not deterred. I'm going to keep doing this thing anyway. Unfortunately, the show Twitter page has uh, already experienced its first strike. I imagine if you're listening to this podcast, you've seen the thumbnail image is a stick figure or two stick figures with a gun. And that is apparently just more violence than Twitter is willing to tolerate. So Ethan Klein with his two and a half million followers, he just recently said that if there's another Holocaust, well, he hopes Ben Shapiro is the first to get gassed. And last time I checked, his Twitter account is still in good standings. So, you know, I'm no Ben Shapiro fan by any stretch, but, uh, you know, some, I guess, consistency and rule enforcement would be nice. But, uh, but no, I guess stick figures with guns. Ooh, that's just a little too much for Twitter to accept. Anyway, enough of my, uh, social media rant. Let's get into today's actual episode. So Karl Marx, he once said that, Religion is the opiate of the masses. But as it turns out, the real opiate of the masses is opiates. And it certainly is the case in America today. I am a big fan of opiates. Well, at least I used to be. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about my sobriety and I guess sobriety in general. This is kind of Spider just crawled down next to my head. I guess that's what happens when you do a podcast in the basement. Anyway, uh, what was I saying? Uh, yeah, this is kind of introduction part two. And because uh, I, I think I'm still laying the groundwork uh, for for this podcast. I think it's important because I'm not, I don't know, recapping last night's football games or anything. This is important stuff. And so I think you should know who I am. I don't have any, I don't know, Ivy League degrees or anything like that. I'm not a ballistics expert or a structural engineer, but, you know, I can read and I can read about the magic bullet. I can read the NIST report about World Trade Center Building 7 and its collapse. And I know when I'm being asked to believe something that is completely ridiculous. So where credibility is concerned, I guess all I can really do is give you an honest account and try to give you a window into my brain. And no matter what I say, a certain amount of you are going to think I'm a fed uh, no matter what. And I actually love that. Um, I wouldn't have it any other way. So feel free. All right. Well, let's get personal. Like I said, I am sober. I have been now for over eight years. No drugs, no alcohol. Um, I have the occasional cigar, and ooh, my cr- my uh, coffee use is 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 chronic. So I guess that's the only drug I I partake in. But drug and alcohol abuse 
It is a huge issue today and it's getting worse. Um, opiate overdose is now a leading cause of death among young people in America. Probably is worldwide too. I'm not sure. I don't have those stats, but this definitely has something to say about society in general and, and why is it happening? Well, we know there's more drugs coming in, but that supply has a demand and that's the reality of the situation. It has something to say about, um, what's going on in society today, perhaps a lack of meaning or, uh, you know, frustration. I'm not really sure what it is, but nobody's going to stop it. So the awareness is up to us. And that's why I think it's important for me to talk about it. By telling my own story, I can talk about this. And if one person hears it and just realizes that it's not hopeless and that there's another way, well, I mean, that's better than any sort of conspiracy theory conclusion that I could help them come to. So my story is a classic one. It's boy meets Oxycontin and lives horribly ever after. I guess not ever after, but horribly for a long time anyway. If you have seen that miniseries Dope Sick, then you've seen the macro version of a long period of my life. The details are different, but pretty much the same. Now, I don't want to make excuses for what I did, but I didn't set down a road purposefully to become a drug addict. At least at the time, I didn't feel like I was hopeless or super depressed. Um, And in fact, I I didn't know uh, what you know, addiction or even dope sick was, you know, the namesake of the show. I figured that if I got these things from a doctor, then it wasn't possible for them to be dangerous. I was totally clueless about addiction. Fortunately, I didn't grow up with it in my house, but, um, yeah, totally clueless and figured doctors, uh, you know, could do no harm. I ended up figuring out real quick, what dope sick was. I remember the first time that it clicked in my head and I thought, Oh shit, I can't stop doing this. And by that time it was too late. And let me tell you, chemical dependency is a bitch. Imagine the dope sickness as the worst flu, uh, with debilitating depression and kind of no will and ambition It is awful. And you become a slave to staying not sick. Life gets really small and really meaningless really quick. So at this time, there was a kind of tsunami of Oxycontin just waving over Orange County at that time and and just wrecking it. I went to one of these pill mill doctors looking back on it, it was so obvious what was going on that it's hard to understand why it happened for so long. It was just, so I went to this, you know, very nice medical building and in this one doctor's office, there was just at any given time, a dozen shot out junkies in the waiting room. It looked like the walking dead. And it was so blatantly obvious that um, 
It's sad to think back about how long it went on. The first time I called that doctor's office, they said, I'll bet you want Oxycontin 80s, right? And I was like, yeah, that's exactly what I want. And that's exactly what I got. Again, not to, I guess, blame the doctor, but I was an otherwise healthy guy in my 20s and I was getting more Oxycontin and more Xanax right away than probably what a terminal cancer patient needs. Oh yeah. And a bunch of Adderall to, you know, I keep me alert. That doctor and his staff, they're all in prison now. They ended up killing a lot of people and by the grace of God, I wasn't one of them. So here's a pro tip. Don't fill your massive drug scripts at Costco if you have a family card. And I was a junkie, yes, but I know where the deals are. So uh, I would fill my scripts at Costco. Now, I didn't know that they had a, I don't know, loyalty points or credit system or something like that. But uh, you could imagine my mother's surprise when she found out she was accruing points at the rate of a few grand a month. I'm sure it was an awkward conversation, but to be honest, I don't really remember it. I was pretty numb at the time. Perhaps I didn't have enough Adderall that day or something. But uh, anyway, this pill addiction, it went on for a long, long time. There was a lot of wasted years in there. Until the government stepped in and fixed everything. <laughs> no, just kidding. That's that's absolutely not what happened. The government did step in, but what they did was they banned that particular form of Oxycontin that was just so so perfectly snortable and smokable and injectable. Why it's almost as if it's almost as if they had planned it that way. But uh but I digress. So even though these drug companies reward their compliant politicians handsomely, well, too many dead kids, I guess, just doesn't play well at the polls. So yeah, they stepped in and they banned everyone's famous uh, favorite pharmaceutical drug. And essentially overnight, they turned all the uh, pharma junkies into street junkies. And maybe that was bumbling ineptitude, or maybe it was just a little bit of that Mina Arkansas action. I don't know. But in any case, I was now a customer of the Mexican cartels instead of the American variety. And it would go on like that for another half decade. It's kind of like the movie Inception, being a junkie. The real world just keeps moving at the regular pace. And you just pop back in every once in a while and try and figure out how much time was passed. Since, uh, since the last time you were there, a lot of life happened and I barely noticed. I barely noticed because I was in my own kind of world of hopelessness and depravity. I hurt a lot of people and, uh, I did a lot of damage and I'm, I'm one of the lucky ones because I got out. Uh, so many of the people I know are, are dead and it's kind of like that Turbo Negro song, All My Friends Are Dead. <laughs> Turbo Negro. <laughs> Am I allowed to say that? Am I allowed to say Turbo Negro? Yeah. Um, I, the Dixie Chicks had to change their name, but I guess the uh, the Lily White uh, Norwegians are, <laughs> are still running around under the name Turbo Negro. 
I wonder if they're on Twitter. <laughs> uh, anyway, anyway, um, the reason I am, the, the reason I'm talking about this, the reason I'm talking about my sobriety and I purposefully left it out of the, uh, the, the last episode is because I think that being sober gives me a unique perspective on conspiracy theory topics. I've noticed that there are a lot of sober conspiracy theorists and shout out to my favorite sober conspiracy theorist, Donald Trump, the Cheeto Jesus. He is, uh, he's one of my people. Um, remember before he was like a pharma shill, he was, he was kind of an anti-vaxxer and remember the birther stuff. Yeah. He used to be a conspiracy theorist for sure. And he's totally sober. Um, I don't know, maybe that dork Mike Pence got to him or something. The reason, I mean, on a serious note now, the reason that I feel that sobriety is helpful for a conspiracy theorist is because when you get sober, it is like being shot out of a reality cannon. It is really uncomfortable. And in fact, it hurts. It's this raw emotional state. And it's kind of like being born again. Um, Because I imagine that's that's painful too. Not again, but the original birth seems dramatic. Um, anyway, for better or worse at that time, I didn't have like the kind of day-to-day concerns that, um, that you have when you, uh, you know, have a normal life because I had kind of ruined all that normal life. So you might call it like a great reset for lack of a less terrifying term, but I was able to kind of take a step back and, take a fresh perspective on my life and evaluate my physical and um, spiritual condition and plan for uh, my future mindfully. And it's a luxury that I wouldn't wish uh, upon my worst enemy, but also um, I wouldn't change it for anything because uh, um, it was hell to get there, but it was a really meaningful experience. And I think we're experiencing a crisis of reality right now. Uh, Speaking of Trump, I remember in 2017, I watched a documentary, which I'm pretty sure was CNN. Uh, I should have looked it up, but uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was CNN. It was a documentary about how easy it was to steal an election uh, because at that time, everyone was claiming that Russia or I don't know, somebody stole the election with like $107,000 worth of Facebook ads. But in any case, all the talk was about how easy it was to steal an election. And then three years later, when I'm watching the next election, I watched three states shut down their counting in the middle of the night. And after that, it was like uh, all you ever heard was how impossible it was to steal an election. Now, I don't think any of the elections are legitimate, but the comparison between those two things really does point out, you know, the sort of crisis of reality that we're living under. Uh, Both of those things can't be true at the same time, you know, in the difference of, I guess, four years. It's like, don't ask questions. That's a conspiracy theory now. And then during COVID, you know, we learned of asymptomatic spread. You probably went your entire life experiencing sickness and how to deal with it. And then all of a sudden we were asked to believe that people who aren't sick, well, they're actually sick and they'll make you sick and they're going to kill your grandma without even knowing it. So what you thought of sickness before, well, that wasn't reality, 
But don't worry, there were plenty of experts on hand to to correct your reality. In the last couple of years, we've printed a third of our money supply. And everyone is just so confused about where all this inflation is coming from. It's just such a mystery. Hmm. Now, I'm pretty sure that diluting a money supply is just math. And math is pretty much rooted in reality. But maybe your reality is just transitory. I don't know. Recently, we've been hearing about NATO. Well, NATO is an organization that only exists as an existential threat to Russia. And since about 2014, or that's when it got worse, since 2014, NATO has been moving ever closer closer to Russia's borders. And that is despite, you know, assurances that they gave that they wouldn't do that. And now the details of that are a little bit murky. Um, You know, was it ever written anywhere or whatnot? But the reality of the situation is that they are moving ever closer to Russia and all they are is an organization that presents a threat to Russia. So whatever you think about Putin and Russia or NATO, it's not unprovoked. And yet that's the only thing we're allowed to say about this conflict. Now, the current state of affairs just might get us into a nuclear war. And that is the consequences of our perceptions of reality. There is not your truth and my truth. There is only the truth. And I think it's important for us to try and pursue that truth, to try and pursue that reality relentlessly. Because as we are seeing, it has consequences. All right. On a reality side note, for some strange reason, when I got sober, I was really into watching hunting shows, like obsessed with watching hunting shows. And it was very strange because I wasn't a hunter before. Orange County is not exactly a hunter's destination. So I didn't really know why I was drawn to it at the time, but I was. Um, in fact, I have this uh, this video of me practicing shooting my bow in um, our New York City apartment. So uh, I guess I'll post that on the social medias, I guess the ones that still exist when I um, post this episode. Anyway, um, now I understand why I was so drawn to hunting because Hunting is as real as it gets. You're in a hyper-aware state. You're quiet, alone in the woods. You're an observer in the wild. And just just seeing a bear or a deer or some large animal in nature, it's a really spiritual experience. And shooting an animal is a really difficult experience. It forces you to... I would hope it forces you to grapple with, um, you know, what you're doing to have a reverence for the animal whose life you're taking that will nourish you and your family. It really does feel like you're tapping back into something, uh, that our ancestors did. And there are few experiences that make you feel so alive. And that's because nature is 
real. It's as real as it gets. Hunting is real. And I think that's why I was drawn to it. One of the main things that you have to realize during the process of getting sober is that everything you thought before or everything you did before to guide your life was wrong. And you have to relearn everything. Your entire operating system is corrupted and you have to redo it because I guess that's what got you in the mess in the first place. So it is one hell of a humbling experience to have to do this. A lot of people have a hard time accepting new ideas. It puts them into fight or flight mode and it threatens their security. But pulling yourself back from the brink of death by challenging your own fundamental ideas, well, it's certainly a helpful skill for a conspiracy theorist. Because government lies and corruption and whatnot, well, they just kind of pale in comparison to the crisis that you already dealt with. And I'm able to now remove my emotions and analyze a situation, and it's very helpful. Also, Living that life, living that junky kind of crimey life, it means that you're interacting with people at their lowest vibrational state. I mean, myself included. Drug addicts act horribly towards each other. And it's an example of just how, you know, the inhumanity that people are capable of. And it's not hard for me to imagine how a doctor could, you know, provide medications or treatments that aren't necessarily in the best interest or even dangerous uh, for their patients because I saw it. And I'm not saying that all doctors are drug addicts or anything, but um, because inhumanity does exist within people, even if it's just carelessness or willful ignorance. Um, And we saw this. We saw this play out over the last couple of years. I mean, people died without their family members by their side. I mean, could you imagine seeing a loved one die on a Zoom call? If that's not inhumanity, I don't know what is. And it kind of makes me want to cry. So let's move on. Um, Let's lighten it up a little bit. Uh, How about jail? Well, I went to jail And whatever you think about jail is, it's worse. It's filthy and overcrowded. At least the ones I was in were. Basically, everyone in jail, you know, at least local jails, seems like everyone in there is just there because they're a drug addict. And, you know, their crimes are some, uh, you know, actually like a drug possession crime or drug dealing or some ancillary crime in order to acquire drugs. But it's like the entire place is just filled with drug addicts. Now, I don't know what the solution is, but I know that, you know, keeping all those people in the revolving door of local jail lockups, well, that's not the way to do it. Most of them, I can tell you from experience, are just slaves to an addiction. So what we're doing is not the solution. I know in America specifically, we used to have like a physical infrastructure for dealing with mental health and we don't have that anymore. And that role is being taken up by our jail systems and it's not working. Um, I know 
that it's also probably worth a lot of money in the way that, um, you know, sort of federal and state financial transactions happen. It's very complicated. Uh, we also have private prisons in America. So the war on drugs is, um, whatever you may think about it, it is profitable. And on a, on a, sort of minor footnote to that. I know in Orange County, they actually release you at 2 a.m. so that they can charge the state for an extra day of your stay at the old Orange County, uh, you know, Gray Bars Motel. And then don't get me started with with uh, probation. Probation just seems like a way to keep their clients coming back. It uh, It truly is a revolving door. I also dealt with the legal system, obviously. And, um, I can tell you that, you know, there's a lot wrong with that. We, we hear all this talk these days about cashless bail and stuff. And I don't know if that's the solution either. It certainly has its dangers and drawbacks, but you know, I was in courtrooms with people who had, you know, very expensive attorneys, but also the same charges as me. And they got their charges dropped or they got to, you know, leave that day or whatever. And then my public defender would tell me, you know, this is a pretty good deal. You should just sign this deal, you know, do the time. You're not going to get any better than this. And, you know, I was just some, you know, petty criminal just trying to sell a little bit to stay high on my own supply just so I wouldn't get sick for another day. And for me, you know, that meant you know, possibly years in jail and fines and a criminal record that follows you forever. It, it has its consequences and I couldn't afford the expensive attorneys. Well, speaking of expensive attorneys, the Sackler family of, you know, Purdue Pharma, the ones that made all that Oxycontin and knowingly pushed it on the population with the help of the FDA. Well, they have plenty of money. They got plenty of attorneys. They're going to be fine. Um, a little bit of an ego hit, I guess, when they had to rename a, a wing of the Metropolitan Art Museum. But uh, no jail time for them. Still got billions of dollars of that blood money and all the attorneys you could ask for. And I guess this is the kind of corruption that you know we'll be talking about here on this podcast. So I do want to give credit where credit is due. There are good people within the system. It's not all bad. I had one judge who was a really good guy. I think he was good hearted and um, I think he, he really did kind of want the best for the people that came through his court. He actually had me stand up and turn around and address the court and let everyone know kind of how I was sober and what I had done to turn my life around. And because of that, he was really lenient on me and he, he, you know, he had his hands kind of tied by protocol, but to the best of his ability, he was lenient on me. And thankfully because of him, I don't have a, uh, you know, massive criminal record, uh, that follows me around today. Now, fortunately or unfortunately, I experienced living on the fringes of society. I experienced people at their most primal. People are in this life that I lived were operating out of, you know, fear and extreme scarcity. It's a, it's a dangerous place to live. 
but it's a window into the human condition that I don't think most people get to see. It's a hyper real and a raw version of psychology of, of what motivates people. And I think we aren't that complicated. We have a basic set of wants and needs and those manifest differently depending on the conditions of your life at the time. Really, if you think about it, are the desires and the motivations of the you know, psychopaths on Wall Street and Washington, D.C., are they so different from the dope man or the crooked cop? Well, after experiencing both sides of this spectrum, my opinion is no, no, they're, they're not that much different. I lived a crazy life full of crazy experiences. I was narcan and essentially brought back to life and I was mad about it. I've seen others overdose and die. Uh, I've had guns pulled on me. Um, I did things that could have landed me in jail or obviously could have landed me dead. But by the grace of God, I'm here today uh, doing a podcast in my basement. Go figure. In all of my experience, a conclusion that I've come to is that modernity is selling us a false bill of goods. The prevailing wisdom of the modern age is that, you know, we should be selfish and, you know, self-love is the highest attainable goal. And then, you know, you can work for some soulless corporation so that you can get all the stuff. It's no wonder that people are feeling unfulfilled and a lot of them are turning to drugs because the elements of the fulfillment periodic table are, they're not things. Um, they are selflessness and service to others. They are love. They are family. And most importantly, a connection to the spiritual world. Reconnecting spiritually is the key to all of it. Sam Tripoli always says that these topics, uh, conspiracy theory topics, are about a spiritual battle. And I think he's right to conclude that because we are spiritual beings. I don't think it's even possible to evaluate topics like this without an intact spiritual connection. You just wouldn't have the, I guess, perspective needed to do it accurately. Now, I've been completely spiritually dead, and now my spirit is overflowing, and I'm grateful beyond words, truly beyond words. I don't think I can express it here how grateful I am for the life that I get to lead today. I'm truly happy and truly fulfilled, and that's something I could never say before. It was difficult to live the life I did, but I'm much better for it. And I'm grateful that anyone would actually listen to me rant about it. So thank you. But um, let me let me just also say that this is my experience. This is what it took for me to get here. And I'm not saying at all that anyone who, you know, has some drinks or enjoys a good head trip can't get here. This was just my journey and it's how I had to awaken. Also, for the record, 
I do feel like psychedelics can play a role in the waking up of the collective conscious. Fortunately for me, um, I've done mine for about two lifetimes. So maybe my future has some kind of uh, some more, I guess, psychonaut rocket trips around my mind. But for now, I'm good. I'm more than good. Well, that was cathartic. Um, I, I hope it was as good for you as it was for me. Um, I don't know. Did any of that resonate with you? Uh, are you sober? Are you, uh, are you another sober conspiracy theorist? Are you not sober, but maybe you think you should be? I don't know. Maybe you think I'm nuts. Uh, shoot me an email and, and let me know what you think. I'd really love to hear from you about this topic. If you have any thoughts on it, I will put the email address in the notes section and, um, I'll also post the social medias, uh, that again, aren't banned by the time this goes live. So thank you again for joining me and, uh, thanks for listening and let's roll that beautiful bean footage. Thank <laughs> you.